Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, the monthly programme of news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, there is more public recognition and appreciation of shipping and its vital importance to Ireland. In terms of shipping, it generally never makes the, the front pages unless there's an incident, unless there's something like the Ever Given happens, all of a sudden shipping then becomes, you know, front and foremost of people's thoughts. Over the last two years with COVID and the disruption of the supply chains globally, particularly with containerization and the impact that it's had on container supply chains, shipping has become typically something that people is first and foremost in their thoughts. That's Glenn Murphy, new chairman of the Worldwide Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers, who will be discussing the challenging task of arranging shipping voyages. And we'll go to the Irish port to which Columbus brought his ships during voyages of exploration to hear about his planned future development. That's very much aligned with the National Planning Framework, which speaks quite correctly, in my view, about, you know, allowing the likes of Galway, Limerick, Cork and Waterford to expand, you know, realign the country better just from Dublin and the Pale, so that allowing those regional cities to take on a lot of the lifting in terms of Ireland's population growth and economic growth into the future. Conor O'Dowd, Chief Executive of Galway Port, on the future for the Western Capitals Port. And what can you hear inside a seashell? We'll tell you about the sounds from thousands of different varieties of seashells to be found on the seashore. This is the first in our new series of hour-long programmes about the sea around our coastline, our lakes and rivers, all part of Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development, and all vital socially and economically to the country. First to the western shores and the city of the tribes Galway, where the gate-locked port has a narrow entrance through which I've passed aboard ships, admiring the skill of seafarers as they manoeuvred their vessels. The port is alongside the road artery through Galway and therefore a major part of the city scene. And the port company wants to create a new deep-water dock, reclaiming land from the sea to do so, while retaining the inner harbour for recreational and marine tourism usage and opening up waterfront areas for use. Inspiration from the past, innovation in the present, a legacy for the future, it says. Conor O'Dowd is Chief Executive of Galway Port. How did he become the man to oversee this plan? Uh, just over three years now, Tom, I, I, I started back in um, the, the back end of 2018 and I suppose I became aware of the port's plans and, and the port itself and it's kind of what it, what it was doing day to day and indeed its plans for the future, primarily through my involvement in the, the Chamber of Commerce uh, 
and my involvement in the chamber had brought me to meet the people from the port and understand the great opportunities it had. And then when the position came up, I applied for it. And uh, thankfully, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here now. Did you have a background in marine maritime shipping or is this your first involvement in the marine sphere? Uh, no, very much so. My my first involvement. Uh, I'm an accountant by by training, Tom. I worked with KPMG all of my working life. Would have had some exposure to the marine in terms of some some clients over the years, but but no, my my background is in accountancy. But as I said, certainly my involvement in the the Chamber of Commerce and other business activities in Galway kind of made me me realise what what the port did, and I suppose in particular the. The, its plans and, and the potential for the future and that's what very much drew me to the position. Like many people obviously in Galway you'd be very much aware of the port because it's part really of the traffic corridor roadwise through Galway everybody sees the port so it's very much an integral part of the city scene. Very much so, very much so and you know we're, we're very much a, a maritime City, Tom, but but you're, you're absolutely right. You know, as you go on that main drag for, from east to west uh, al- along the dockside, you know, people are aware of the port. And I think the other thing that was great was the likes of the Volvo Ocean uh, Race and Sea Fest, which I think really highlighted the port and, and brought people in to see it and, and see the vessels there and the activities there. And they were a great few days a number of years ago, which I think really opened up the port to the wider public. But you're absolutely Absolutely right. Uh, people are well aware of it. Very much a, a maritime city, and the port's an integral part of Galway's fabric. And that maritime history goes way back because I think fondly of walks I've taken myself down the Long Walk, the Spanish Arch, the sign, and the Spanish acknowledgement of Columbus's visit to Galway. The the tribes, the merchant trades from way back it reeks if i may put it in the most nicest way of maritime all that area very much so tom you know that there's a very rich history associated with the port and as you say in terms of christopher columbus and you know Galway was a very significant port back back in it back in the many many years ago we'd like to think it's still very significant but then it was it was a very large port in relative terms and uh you know as you say very rich maritime history you know halfway up the west coast the biggest city in the region so it is uh it's something i think i'm certainly acutely aware of the history of the port and and hopefully uh you know my job is is to make sure that the history that's ret- written into the future will be one that we can all be very proud of you know and looking to that future the plan that Galway port has for the future makes it very much uh, looking towards modern developments using the sea and the resources of ocean energy, uh, the wind energy offshore, uh, cruise liners visiting and the maritime tourism perspective are all in the plan you have for Galway. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I suppose... What, what's been interesting over the last few years since I took on the job, it's our job, you know, that the port, the existing port has served Galway well. But the reality is that it is tidal and gated. We're not, we're not able to accommodate the bigger ships we'd like to. So, you know, our plan would be to relocate to a larger facility. 
and provide better facilities for businesses in the west of Ireland generally in terms of just the, the conventional cargoes. But what I think has been interesting over the last number of years is the opportunities that are going to open up for Galway and indeed the wider region to uh, offshore renewable energy is something we're tremendously excited about. And, you know, what I'd also say to you, Tom, is that if you look at countries that have been successful in A, providing renewable energy and, and getting turbines in the sea and also developing a supply chain and creating highly paid jobs, such as Denmark, Scotland and Norway would be the ones that come to mind. They're countries that have really spent a lot of time and effort developing a, a port infrastructure. So, you know, we believe that a new port of Galway can play a vital role in the deployment and, and service of offshore wind into the future and something we're tremendously excited about. I'm spending a lot of time on that uh, element of our business lately. And I suppose the, the other comment I'd make to you, Tom, as well, is that, you know, over a number of years we have been facilitating the deployment of onshore turbines that's went a little bit quiet uh, over the last couple of years where we see an uptick in that activity from 2022 until the end of the decade and that's something we're excited about again facilitating the deployment of onshore turbines as well. And if you develop the new port obviously it frees up a certain amount of land I suppose for other purposes while still maintaining the inner dock for marine tourism which has been coming quite successful I note in terms of the number of leisure craft using the port. Yeah that's absolutely right Tom and and back in, in May um, we launched our vision for the inner dock we, we've 17 acres of land here which could be redeveloped in the event of a port relocation and we launched our vision to the public and stakeholder groups in terms of politicians and business groups, you know, cycling groups the arts community so we had a very extensive consultation we set up a website and I'm pleased to say that the vision we set out for the inner dock lands was very well received by the public and stakeholders alike so we're looking forward to you know developing that vision in conjunction with our plans for the new port over the coming years but I think what what people could see and and one of the kind of taglines in in terms of the, the messaging when we launched our vision was this idea of kind of sea fest every day or particularly in the summer so that wonderful experience which my family and, and many others would have experienced during Seafest and the ocean race of enjoying the docks, you know, grabbing a bite to eat, walking alongside the water, that that's something that could be made more permanent if the inner dock lands were be developed. So it's a wonderful opportunity for the city and I think for the city to kind of face the sea and bring that waterfront amenity back to life for the people of Galway in conjunction with residential, commercial, development as well and a significant amount of public ground. So something we're tremendously excited about and we were delighted with the response to the launch of our vision. At what stage is the plan now? Yeah, in terms of the new port, on board Planola completed its statement of case a number of months ago and the file is now with the Department of Housing for their consideration. So we, we await their deliberations. I suppose Galway has had a few false starts uh, uh, despite the, the great hopes there were in the past. This one, looking at it on the website where people can find the detail, in great detail in fact, this one is seems to be a very confident approach with great hopes for the future. Would I be right? I think that's fair, Tom. And, and I suppose what 
what gives me, and you know, I wouldn't have taken on the job if I didn't think that the plans were, were capable of being brought to fruition. But I, I think what I'm particularly struck by is that I think we've two key elements to our proposal. So you've got the, the new port and also then as a consequence of that, you've got the inner dock development. And I think I'm very struck, you know, as a state entity, ultimately, we're, we're owned directly by Galway City Council from 1 January 21, but ultimately we're, we're acutely conscious that we're a state company. But we're very much aligned I feel at the moment with, with key government policy. So in terms of the climate action plan and we've all seen, you know, in terms of the efforts that Ireland will need to undertake to reduce its emissions and ports have a huge role in that. So I'm, I'm very comfortable of the fact that, you know, that the port expansion is very much aligned with the climate action plan, which is a key policy initiative of both the government and I think at a wider EU level. And then, then in terms of the inner dock development, that's very much aligned with the National Planning Framework, which speaks quite correctly, in my view, about, you know, allowing the likes of Galway, Limerick, Cork and Waterford to expand, you know, realign the country better just from Dublin and the Pale, um, so that allowing those regional cities to take on a lot of the lifting in terms of Ireland's population growth and economic growth into the future. So I think we're very much aligned with those key policy pillars which I think is really important in terms of bringing our plans to fruition. Conor O'Dowd, Chief Executive of Galway Port, with points there about the importance of ports in our major cities around the coast. Does the public fully appreciate the importance of shipping? As some ports, Cork and Waterford for example, have moved away from city centres, public visibility of shipping has declined. The new chairman of the Worldwide Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers, Glenn Murphy, only the second Irishman in that post in its 120-year history, believes the public is now much more aware of the role of shipping in our daily lives because of supply chain issues. Formerly director of the Irish Maritime Development Office, he has 30 years experience as a shipbroker and runs his own company, Seafield Brokers, in Dublin. What does a shipbroker do? Typically, shipbrokers, uh, it's, it's not a, a very well-known profession. And when you, you mention to people you work as a shipbroker, the first thing they ask you is that most people haven't come across shipbrokers in their normal uh, daily lives. So it, it, it is a typical type of question. Uh, our role primarily in its simplest form is we act as intermediaries between cargo interests or cargo merchants, so people that own commodities and ship owners um, to negotiate uh, terms of carriage or contracts for leasing vessels uh, from one place in the world to another. Um, modern day shipbroking has probably evolved beyond that in terms of simple execution of, of the contract to managing the whole transaction from uh, pre-market analysis so where a client will come to you they'll want to know what the, the market availability is, what the rates may be for vessels for particular commodities from one part of the world to, to another. Uh, so your job is essentially to begin with is market assessment is providing them with an overview of the market in terms of what, what they might expect to pay at a period. Um, and then advising them what the typical types of terms that are particular for those trades or types of vessels. Then you will set out and negotiate the contract 
uh, from that point, we then generally take over where we pick up the supply chain from their suppliers and negotiating with the port agents uh, for the berthing of the vessel. And then we manage the voyage all the way through in terms of overseeing the the day-to-day loading operations of the vessel. Once the vessel goes to sea, then we're monitoring the performance of the ship at sea, that she's keeping her schedule. The new post you've been appointed to, that's a very... uh important one and a good recognition of the Irish aspect and involvement in the international maritime scene. It is, um, you know, I'm quite mindful that it's quite a senior uh, role in in terms of our industry. Ship brokers, there's about 5,000 professional ship brokers actively trading uh, around the world today. Um, The organisation itself has been in existence since 1911. Uh, and it got its royal charter in the UK in 1920, so it's just over 100 years uh, as a professional organisation. The Irish branch of the Institute of Chartership Brokers has been in existence for, for over 50 years, and the Irish members have played a fairly active role in the growth of the organisation globally over that, that period of time. So I'm only the second Irish person in the 120-odd years of the organisation to, to hold the role of, of uh, chairman of the organisation. So it is, um, yeah, it's quite an important role. It's quite prestigious, and I think, as you said, it's uh, it's also recognition of the fact of the what the Irish branch has managed to do in terms of its contribution to the institute, particularly in, in modern times of the last twenty twenty five years, where we've been fairly heavily heavily involved with the organisation. Also, very important, it would seem to me nowadays, is the supply lines. We heard so much talk, the unfortunate incident with the Ever Given in the Suez Canal, how a delay can affect supply lines. So the shipbroker has a very important role in the maintaining of supply lines and ensuring that when a ship gets to port, the services are there and are effective and available. Shipping, as you know, is typically never far away from a crisis. I mean, every every transaction you're involved with, there's a, there's a fair amount of risk loaded into it. Um, but in terms of shipping, it generally never makes the, the front pages uh, or even back pages in, in, the, in the financial um, publications unless there's an incident, unless there's something like the Ever Given happens, all of a sudden shipping then becomes you know, front and foremost of people's thoughts. But it, over the last two years with COVID and the disruption to supply chains globally, particularly with containerization and the impact that it's had on container supply chains, shipping has become uh, typically uh, something that people is first and foremost in their thoughts, particularly companies that are trying to import or export, trying to find uh, secure uh, supply on board of containers on board vessels, or with the lack of containers, which is the biggest problem, is trying to find alternative routes to market. So companies that have never charted vessels, and uh, we, you know, we've come across a number of them in the last two years, they've never actually physically charted a vessel, have had to find alternative ways to get their goods to market. And you know that's impacted Irish companies, big and small, but not just Irish companies, multinational uh, Coca-Cola, IKEA, companies like that that would typically be heavily dependent on containers and supply chains have had to switch and find alternative ways of chartering in vessels to, to get their goods to market. So um, the role that shipbrokers play in that in terms of being professional, in terms of being able to guide their, their principles through this, you know, fundamentally is what the Institute does. We, you know, we, we, we set professional standards and it is the role of a shipbroker to be able to find alternatives or substitutes for their clients when, they, when these types of disruptions come along.
Glenn Murphy, chairman of the Worldwide Institute of Chartered Shipbrokers. As he said, every shipping movement presents its own challenges, and our lifestyles ashore depend on ships and seafarers. Now let's have a look at current maritime news from home and overseas with Anton O'Callaghan. There's been a strong warning from the Maritime Casualty Investigation Board about safety in water sports. The chairperson of the MCIB says that the occurrence of so many incidents involving sailing, rowing, canoeing and kayaking in the last few years is of particular safety concern. In its annual report, Claire Callanan strongly encourages all organisations, clubs and commercial entities associated with water sports and water recreational activities to audit their safety arrangements. Safety in this sector is a particular concern, she says, noting that pandemic restrictions, preventing overseas travel and leading to more people staying in Ireland could be a possible contributory factor. The Irish Naval Service says it is mission-ready to operate with international navies at home and overseas after achieving NATO accreditation. In the Defence Force's annual report, it says this is a first for the service. During operations last year, it inspected 269 fishing boats and arrested nine of them for alleged fishing offences. As well as Irish vessels, these were British, French, Spanish, Dutch, Norwegian, Russian, Belgian and from the Faroes. The Locks Agency has appointed Galway woman Heather Mackey as chairperson of its board. She is the first female appointee to the post. The agency is one of the cross-border bodies set up between the Irish and UK governments and Northern Ireland. It's responsible for conservation, management, promotion and development of fisheries and marine resources in the Foyle and Carlingford areas. The Irish Farmers Association aquaculture sector has challenged the government to deliver on its promises to develop aquaculture. IFA aquaculture executive Theresa Morrissey says people need to eat healthy food and aquaculture provides it. The world still needs to eat healthy food. Particularly the world needs more than ever sustainable sources of protein. Irish aquaculture also has its role to play in providing sustainable carbon efficient seafood which it has already been proven to be very good at producing a high quality product recognised around the world. However, true political backing is needed for Irish aquaculture to really play its part and provide the food security that is needed into the future. The Seafood Task Force recommended a €60 million fund for initiatives in the Irish aquaculture sector. The report describes the government's ambition to develop Irish aquaculture to mitigate against the negative impacts of Brexit that have been most pronounced in other sectors of the Irish seafood industry. This represents an opportunity to invest in developing the Irish aquaculture industry. The true test of these recommendations for Irish aquaculture will only be borne out in the actions that should follow to allow such proposed initiatives to become a reality. The former Principal Officer in the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine has been appointed Executive Chairman of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority. Pascal Hayes was appointed by his boss, Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue. Mr Hayes also led the Irish Managing Authority for the European Maritime Fisheries Fund. Listeners will remember the blocking of the Suez Canal last year by the huge container ship Ever Given, and how that affected world supply chains. While the company which owns it, the Evergreen Line, is getting the world's largest container ship 
which has been floated out of the shipyard in China where it is being built. Next stage will be fitting out before launching. It's named the Everalot, possibly because it can carry the most containers ever, 24,004 of them. It measures the same as other Evergreen big container ships, 1,312 feet long, a beam of 202 feet wide and 109 feet high. It is the largest in the world by rated capacity. The seaside town of Yall in East Cork is remembered for its association with the making of the film about the whale Moby Dick. A very rare white sperm whale, just like that depicted in Herman Melville's literary classic Moby Dick, was spotted off the coast of Jamaica by sailors aboard the Dutch oil tanker Coral Energies. Its captain, Leo Van Tolly, filmed video of it on the water's surface. His partner, Anne-Marie Vandenberg, is director of the whale conservation charity SOS Dolphin in the Netherlands, and she confirmed the rare sighting, which can be seen on the charity's Facebook page. And finally, proving that there's always something unusual in the sea, the British Antarctic Survey has discovered an unprecedented level of marine species deep beneath Antarctica's ice shelves, dozens of life forms thriving on a tiny patch of the seafloor in an environment that has never seen sunlight, it says. The ice shelves cover 600,000 square miles, that's 1.6 million square kilometres of ocean. 77 different species were identified, many of them filter feeders, looking like a piece of moss. Tube-feeding worms were also discovered. What lies beneath the ice may be Earth's least explored undersea habitat, according to the British Antarctic researchers. So much life living in these extreme conditions has come as a complete surprise, they say. And that's your monthly news roundup here on Maritime Ireland Radio Show. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. This is our first programme of the new year. But for one of our contributors, the new year started last month. Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, explains from the group's headquarters on the banks of the Shannon in Kilrush County, Clare, as he outlines their plans for this year. I'm writing this on the first day of the new year, 22nd of December, after the longest night. Last night's winter solstice celebrated Earth's regeneration or rebirth and is associated with health and fertility. This applies to our oceans too. Winter storms replenish the surface waters with essential elements to fuel the spring plankton growth. This will support our rich marine biodiversity, our commercially important fish and shellfish and thus our coastal communities. It is all connected. The new year brings new opportunities and challenges. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group have been looking ahead to 2022 to identify our priorities and ensure we have the resources to achieve them. Top of the list are marine protected areas, or marine conservation zones as we prefer to call them. The time for MCZs is now. As well as legal EU obligations, the designation of MPAs are also in the current programme for government. More importantly, MPAs or MCZs are an essential tool to try and turn the tide of continued degradation of our marine habitats and decimation of some marine species. Marine conservation zones should not be seen as a threat to coastal communities in Ireland, but an opportunity. 
Those who work at sea or who will be directly affected must take ownership of these opportunities. We must take the lead and the initiative and not have these new designations foisted upon us from distant civil servants. However, the key to successful MPA or MCZs is the involvement of coastal communities, especially the fishing community. Of course there will be pain and sacrifices if fishers are required to cease or reduce their fishing effort in key areas. How will they be compensated for this loss for the greater good? Farmers on land are rewarded for environmental measures, so fishers should be likewise. They could be the guardians of these MCZs, ensuring management measures which seek to improve biodiversity and abundance are respected. Lime Bay Fisheries and Conservation Reserve off southwest England is often quoted as an excellent example of how MPA designation can benefit many, not all, marine users. This MPA has protected 206 square kilometres of seabed from bottom trawling since 2008. This has led to a fourfold increase in fish species inside the MPA compared to outside where bottom trawling is still allowed. Fish biomass has increased by 370% within the reserve. Some fishing, largely with pots, is still allowed and fish producers are getting premium rates for marketing their product from a marine protected and managed area. Visitors preferentially visit MPAs compared to similar sites not designated, which brings opportunities to local retailers and accommodation, outdoor marine activity providers and education and awareness programs. In 2022, we need to start to build a number of pilot MCZs in Ireland to explore the issues and concerns around MPA designation, build partnerships and trust between stakeholders, develop monitoring programmes to measure empirically the impacts of MPA designation on a suite of species and habitats, to inform managers as to what changes may occur at sites elsewhere. This should not be rushed but should start with listening to fishers and communities and build alliances to ensure this essential management tool is truly effective at building resilient marine ecosystems and coastal communities. This is Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. There seems to be some mutuality in the various views about marine protected areas. Fishermen, big stakeholders in the process, have told me, like Dr. Barrow said, that they don't want civil servants, remote from the marine sector, making decisions that will affect their lives and jobs. From Kilrush up the coast to Mayo, and in Ishlar Island in Clue Bay, from where the Secretary of the Islands Federation, that's Kogal Ilona Heron, Rhoda Twombly, joins us with the latest news from the offshore islands. A very happy new year to you, Tom, and to all listeners. Before we know it, the islands will be welcoming visitors. The video, Escape Overseas to the Islands, has been released to highlight not only the beauty and unique people and experiences of the islands, but also the range of activities offered. The promotional film was directed by award-winning documentary maker Helena Gallagher from Aaron Moore, who clearly demonstrates her filmmaking skill and passion for our offshore islands and all they have to offer. The video emphasizes water sports, cycling and walking to simply relaxing and enjoying the wildlife and scenery. In other words, there's something for everyone out on our islands. Please visit the Kogalidamerm or Cornelan Facebook pages to view the video.
As farming has always been an integral part of island life, Cova Lilanern felt it important to contribute to the Department of Agriculture's public consultation on the environmental assessment of the draft CAP Strategic Plan 2023-27, noting that offshore island farms are some of the best examples of sustaining and protecting our environment and biodiversity, while also crucial to maintaining the landscapes of the islands, Kogos submission presented several points that would benefit offshore island farmers and their land. Kogol proposes that offshore islands are specified in project plans and applications, as well as any proposed mainland hinterland project. Kogol believes that islands deserve a specific mention under several sections in the CAP strategic plan to ensure that the special circumstances of offshore islands are recognized and that the future sustainability of island farming, the environment and biodiversity is to the forefront. Kogol requested additional funding to support island farmers in the past and thankfully were successful with the island increase under the ANC ASC and TAMS categories. This led to the island farming scheme with the new designation of areas of special constraints island farming. This was a very welcome development for the islands and the extra financial support that is currently available must be maintained and strengthened. Kogol are requesting additional financial support through the establishment of an offshore island category across all available agriculture funding schemes under the next CAP strategic plan. Kogol Elanair's submission also emphasized the need for measures to promote remote working to help address declining populations. In the next call for submissions for local development strategies, it is vital that there be a separate, distinct call for a national island strategy. This strategy must have a dedicated ring-fenced budget recognizing the additional challenges and costs involved with islands. The Board of Kogalilanern wishes you all a happy, healthy and enriching 2022 and hopes to involve many of you in workshops and discussions exploring increased sustainability of our islands. So, until we meet again, it's Slon from the Islands. There are an estimated 120,000 types of seashells on shores around the world. Fascinating, a large topic which we look at in our monthly focus report, where Justin Marr hears the sound of seashells. This is the sound of the ocean through a seashell. People commonly hear it because they pick it up by the ocean and put their ear to it. The sound from it would differ greatly if you listen in a different environment. And even if you listen to it in a quiet place, you'll hear something like this. This is called seashell resonance. It's the myth that you can hear the sound of the ocean through a seashell. 
It's formed by the shell's resonant cavity, like cupping your hand over your ear. The sounds are created from the ambient noise filtering through the reverberation of the shell, which accentuates some frequencies and cuts others. Seashells are a hard, protective outer layer which usually forms the exoskeleton of an invertebrate, an animal which has no backbone. The majority of shells that are found on beaches are the shells of marine mollusks such as snails, clams, oysters and many others. The study of their shells is known as conchology. Unlike typical animal structures, seashells aren't made up of cells. For example, turtle shells have living cells, blood vessels and nerves. The main element of seashells is calcium carbonate, which the animals take from the sea around them and build their shells as they grow. Seashells grow from the bottom up or by adding material at the margins. Marine mollusks evolve shells to protect themselves. As fishes and crabs evolved stronger teeth and stronger claws, seashells became stronger and more varied over hundreds of millions of years. They're commonly found in beach drift, the natural detritus brought in by the waves and the tides. The shells are often washed up onto a beach clean and empty as a result of the animal having already died. Throughout history, seashells have been adopted and adapted by humans. Our interest in seashells can be traced back to early human history. Shellfish were, of course, already familiar as food. Some scientists argue that clams, mussels, snails and the like were critical to the brain development that made us human in the first place. But people also soon noticed their delicately sculpted and decorated shells. Anthropologists have identified beads made from shells in North Africa and Israel at least 100,000 years ago as among the earliest known evidence of modern human culture. Since then, various societies have used shells not just as ornaments, but also as blades, oil lamps, currency, cooking utensils, boat balers, buttons, and even musical instruments. This is the sound of a conch shell, which was turned into a horn over 17,000 years ago. It was discovered in a French cave in 1931. It took 90 years for archaeologists to discover that the hole that they thought was accidental damage was a modification to create a seashell horn. Paleolithic music could have been part of rituals or ceremonies held within the caves. When rival French and British expeditions set out for the unknown coasts of Australia in the early 19th century, the French were held up by their captain's desire to discover a new mollusk more than a new landmass, allowing the British to reach Australia first. Marine snails were the source of the precious purple dye, painstakingly collected one drop at a time, that became the symbolic colour of royalty. Shells even inspired an entire French art movement, Rococo, its architects and designers favoured shell-like curves and other intricate motifs. One of the most iconic buildings in the world was inspired by a seashell. The architect of the Sydney Opera House, Jorn Oltsen, credited the fierce-looking Coxham oyster as inspiration for its design. But it shouldn't come as a surprise that buildings have been inspired by shells. A lot of buildings have shells within them. Limestone is made of many particles that have been formed by living organisms, especially seashells of all sizes. Buildings that were cut from limestone have seashells within them. Not only that, but they've been used for insulation as well. A few years ago, 20,000 seashells were found in the ceiling at Leinster House during renovation work. James Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, who became Duke of Leinster, had preferred seashells over horsehair for insulation when building started in 1745. 
Today, the calcium carbonate from seashells can be found in our personal care products like toothpaste. We also use it as an antacid. But seashells are at risk due to ocean acidification as carbonate ions decrease. As one of the fundamental building blocks for shell building, it puts the creatures that form shells in jeopardy. The shells could literally dissolve and may not be able to adapt to the acidified seawater if things go unchecked. We may not be too far away from the day when there will be no seashells, that she sells by the seashore. Justin Marr and the sound of seashells. Would you have thought much about the relevance of marshes to the marine sphere? As part of the EU project Cooperation Across Barriers for Biodiversity, Birdwatch Ireland is monitoring coastal grassland sites in Donegal and Sligo. Fascinating work. The marshes are important to breeding waders, birds such as lapwings, redshank and snipe, and to butterflies, which are under threat across Europe, as Niall Hatch of Birdwatch told me. Yes, absolutely. Um, marshland is some of the most important habitat that we have in Ireland for, for biodiversity. Um, really it supports a whole wealth of not just birds, but many other creatures as well. And obviously in Birdwatch Ireland, we're well known for looking after birds and monitoring those, but we're all about birds and biodiversity. So you can't just project, protect birds themselves. And we want to protect the whole ecosystem. There's a big part of that. We've been doing work uh, at the sites that you mentioned, particularly to, uh, to survey and monitor uh, a particular butterfly called the marsh fritillary butterfly, uh, a really beautiful butterfly species. Species, uh, a threatened species in Ireland as well, and indeed um, a, 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 an insect that is protected uh, under legislation, the only insect in Ireland uh, to, to have that accolade. So this is a very important creature. So we've been monitoring this at the sites where we've also been monitoring for some of the, the wading birds that would use those uh, those marsh areas as well. And it's been it's been great to see us sort of uh, spreading our wings as it were and, and um, helping insects and not just birds. So that's yeah, been really, really positive to see that. And it's something we hope to expand to, to many of the other wetland habitats that we manage and monitor. Uh, as well, because uh, wetlands, they're so important for all sorts of wildlife, very important uh, indicators of what's happening with the wider environment too, because uh, they're, they're very susceptible to things like pollution and degradation. So when we see changes in, in wetland populations of insects and of birds, it tells us a lot about what's happening in the wider environment. And of course, what's happening in the marine environment too, because uh, what happens in our marshes goes on to affect our coastal areas as well. And areas like salt marsh, particularly many of our coastal marshes, are very important for marine and maritime habitats as well. So yeah, it gets a lot of attention from us in Birdwatch Ireland. So the marshes really have a huge role in the whole water aspect? Oh, they do very much so, yes, because marshes, in, in many ways, they're important water catchment places and, and, and uh, sinks, as it were, too. They help to control flooding, for example. And so a lot of these marshes have a great water-bearing capacity. They're also very important for carbon sequestration. So a lot of our marshes and our bogland, they trap a lot of carbon dioxide uh, and really help to reduce our, our emission totals from in Ireland here as well. And they also form a very important water purification element, too. Many areas of marshes that have standing weed beds, for example, they um, will filter out a lot of, of contaminants and pollutants uh, from, from the water, helping to make it much cleaner when it does enter other waterways or indeed enters into the sea. So that's a very important uh, role that they play as well. And many of the marine wildlife that we would associate um, with, with maritime areas, especially this time of year, lots of our migrant ducks and, and geese and so on, they spend a lot of their time in marshes as well. Many of them will breed there, they'll feed there, they'll move between there and, and, uh, and saltwater areas as well. So from that point of view, marshes and, and marine environment go hand in hand. They're very important complements to each other. It's amazing how far the marine sphere reaches out, so marshes need care and attention. 
They absolutely do, Tom. Yes, they do. Because um, I think they've been underappreciated here in Ireland as in the past being seen maybe as waste ground or places where, you know, cultivation or, or livestock couldn't be put. Uh, and the fact is that they're a really important um, biodiversity safeguard here in Ireland, very important for regulating flooding, very important for environmental health and support a wide amount of flora and fauna that are found nowhere else. A lot of the, the creatures and, and indeed the plants which will, will live in, in marshland, they're, they're found nowhere else. They're highly evolved for it. So the only way to protect them is to protect those habitats. And in doing so, you're protecting this whole suite of different species that will rely on that, uh, on that environment. Uh, and that's a benefit for all of us. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, the charity which protects bird life. There's more about the March's research on their website. Now to the angling world, where January is a month when anglers find out what rivers and lakes are open for fishing. Miles Kelly from Fisheries Ireland has this information and other news. Hello again, Tom. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners, especially all the anglers out there. The new year sees the start of a new salmon season, and the new salmon season means a whole raft of new salmon regulations. Right at the close of 2021, the new regulations were announced by Minister Eamon Ryan. For 2022, 81 rivers will be available for salmon and sea trout fishing. Of the 81 rivers, 45 will be fully open, with another 36 rivers available on a catch and release basis. And unfortunately, there will be 66 rivers closed to salmon angling this year. There are far too many rivers to list here, but we have all the details online at fisheriesireland.ie. And as for the salmon fishing so far this season, well, as of yet, Tom, there's been no salmon reported caught, but a number of anglers marked the day on those rivers whose seasons opened on January 1st. On the drows, fishing conditions were reported have been good, with very mild conditions, but these soon turned stormy and the water began to colour up as rains fell. By all accounts, the anglers enjoyed getting out on the water, though, and for some, it was their first outing since 2020, due to the lockdowns in early 2021. January 17th we'll see a few more rivers begin their season, particularly in Kerry where anglers will be sure to mark the day on rivers like the Lown and lakes like Loch Coran. But as to where the first salmon of the season will be caught or when, well that's anybody's guess. There's always a fair bit of interest in what rivers are opened and why others are closed or deemed to be capable of only sustaining catch and release fishing. Since 2007 salmon stocks in selected Irish rivers are assessed each year. We compare the river's salmon stock with its conservation limit. Each river has a designated conservation limit. That's the number of salmon that need to return to the river each year so that the spawning requirements to maintain the river's salmon population are met. There's a wide range of data sources used in the assessments, and these include fish counter data, angling logbooks, and commercial catch statistics, as well as expert opinion on the fishery status of each salmon river. For each new season, Inland Fisheries Ireland and the expert group on salmon use stock assessments from the previous five years to predict the number of adult salmon that will return that season. If the data predicts that the number of salmon returning to a river in the new season will be greater than the designated conservation limit for that river, we say there will be a surplus of fish. We use this information to determine whether a river should be catch and release only, or open, and if open, what the catch limit for that river is. Ireland is internationally recognised for its salmon conservation efforts. However, it's well over a decade since we adopted our current conservation policy. As I said earlier, this system is the one that's been in use since 2007. And this year, Minister Ryan announced that he wants to review and improve the policy. So keep your eye open for the consultation on the Minister's new policy papers on salmon. The first of these is going to look at new options for management and conservation of salmon and how to do it better as a key focus. 
There are a whole slew of environmental, climate and human impacts that continue to place salmon and other species at risk. So this is a great opportunity to raise awareness of all these challenges and for anglers, fisheries managers and the general public to help shape improved policy that will ensure that we will still be talking about the first salmon of the season in years to come. That's all I have this week, Tom. Tight lines. And tight lines always keep anglers happy. Thank you indeed, Miles Kelly. To end with, a look back to September last, when we remembered dockers, the workforce of the ports, men who are part of a great tradition. I've come to know and respect that community of men and their families, and also come to know the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society. For 10 years, it's been working on preserving the culture of the dock labour force on Liffeyside. Declan Byrne, one of the leaders of the society, sent me a photograph with a story about dockers that intrigued him and his members. It came from a seafarer with that great company, Irish Shipping. About not male, but women dockers, and that's unusual. The story of Footprints in the Snow drew a big response. The Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society is one of the 10 years... And we asked people to donate photographs, and to our amazement, we were donated close to 6,000 photographs. Some of them were collections, and then some of them were singular photographs. So a chap called Captain Benny Ford donated a photograph to us, which he referred to as uh, women dockers uh, loading loose timber. And then I would have walked with Benny Ford, He's at sea for most of his life. He then took up a dock superintendent's job in Dublinport. And then he, he told the story that uh, when he started in Dublinport, in the winter months, loose timber came into Dublinport. And then the, the hatch would be opened, and to the doctor's amazement, all the planks of loose timber would have been covered in snow. And then when they went into the hatch, they were even more amazed to see that there was women's, only women's footprints in the snow. So, him being very knowledgeable, they would have said this, oh, they don't understand this. So he would have produced this photograph that he took, I can't remember whether it was 1958 or 1959, in the port of Karkin Finland. The women, the lot of doctors at that period, uh, he was on a ship called the Irish Fern, and uh, when it docked, beside them was the women loading the timber. So he, he produced this as evidence to the, the deep sea dockers in Dublin to show them that in ports, not just in the Second World War, but not even after that, there was ports where the majority of the dockers were women. That photograph is in the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society collection. Frank Byrne, Declan's brother, was inspired by the photograph to write the lyrics of a song, Footprints in the Snow, to which Keith Margot put music, sings and has recorded it. battle with TB Dan 
Oh. 
Footprints in the Snow, a wonderful story with which we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. The programme email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com or phone and text 0872 555 197. That's 0872 555 197. And the email, maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Daily Marine News on Twitter at Tom McSweeney. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing. Mm-hmm.